0: Good morning, my friends. Are you ready for the debut of the 2022 Iowa State Fair? Nothing compares with the Iowa State Fair. <laughs> I did a little research on the fair and uh, I learned this 70% of fairgoers go to the fair because of the food. <laughs> They've got 60-plus mobile foods on a stick. You know, it's like bacon-wrapped everything on a stick. They've got got peanut butter and jelly on a stick. Yeah, really. And if you can believe it, they've got deep-fried pecan pie with caramel and bacon bits sprinkled on top on a stick sometimes called heart attack on a stick. <laughs> on the other hand, if you want to live just a little bit longer, you can eat a salad on a stick or fruit on a stick. You know, the old saying is true. You are what you eat. And that's as true in the spiritual as it is in the physical. Here's the premise for my message this morning. We must eat the fruit of Christ to produce the fruit of Christ. Let it sink in. It's a play on words. We must eat the fruit of Christ to produce the fruit of Christ. Our text, John chapter 15, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 11 momentarily, but first a reminder of how my message today ties into our summer series, More Like Jesus. We're looking at the seven core values of our church. These values represent the fruit of Christ in our lives. But the question is, how do we produce this fruit? And here's a cautionary word to you. If we're not careful, we can fall prey to a kind of do more legalism that actually leads us down the road to defeated Christian living. Many churches today are so focused on doing, they forget all about being. It's do, do, do until everybody's up to their eyes in doo-doo. That's not our intention for this series. Our intention is for you to eat the fruit of Christ so you can produce the fruit of Christ. To our text, John 15, verse 1, part of the Upper Room Discourse, chapters 13 to 16, the night in which Jesus is betrayed, he'll be crucified the next day. And he's trying to minister to his disciples in a way that they can carry on after his passion is completed, and he goes up to heaven. And he makes a point in verse 1, he says, I am the true vine. Pause a moment. Israel thought they were the true vine by trying to keep the law, but according to Isaiah 5, they only produced wild grapes. Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Now he talks about two different groups. Try to figure out which one you're in. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. The other group. But every branch that does bear fruit He prunes that it may bear more fruit. That second category represents those who are truly regenerate, truly born again. Their lives have been transformed. And he references them in verse 3, because Judas has already left to go set out to betray Jesus. So with the 11 that remain, he says of them in verse 3, already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Now, to you guys who are in Christ He says, I have a word for you to continue on, abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. He repeats it. You, disciples, are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Now watch this next part because it's crucially important. For apart from me, you can do, what's the next word? Nothing. Exclusively dependent upon Jesus. Back to the first group, if anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. The branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. The implication's rather clear there where they're going. Verse 7, but if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. So let me unpack for you now what I mean by eating the fruit of Christ to produce the fruit of Christ. Two basic insights, and here is the first. Fruit bearing is God's idea, and He's cultivating us so that we can produce more fruit. When Karen and I go to the Iowa State Fair, which we almost every year do, we always visit the agricultural building. We like to look at the butter cow, just like you guys do, and the changing landscape from year to year. But we also enjoy looking at the garden produce on display because there are some master gardeners in the agricultural state of Iowa. Wow. You'll notice in verse one of our text that God the Father is described as the ultimate master gardener. He not only owns the vineyard, but he designs it. He cultivates it, he works in it, and when I say he works in it, he works in you and me. Do you know that God is working on you right now through this message? If you listen carefully, you'll hear God speak into your heart. We are his workmanship, his masterpiece, Paul told the Ephesians, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, Ephesians 2, verse 10. In our extended context here. Jesus explained that in fruit bearing, God is always previous. God always takes initiative. You see that in verse 16, where Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you, and I appointed you. Jesus, why did you choose us? Why did you appoint us? What's your purpose for us? Why are we still alive here on planet earth? Here's the answer, that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide or continue so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. The point of verse 16, and really the entirety of this vine branch analogy in this context is simply this. Our lives must be Christ-dependent, not self-dependent. Would you humor me for a moment? Would you say those words in yellow out loud with me right now? Christ-dependent, not self-dependent. Self says, follow your heart. Jesus says, follow me. Self says, believe in yourself. Jesus says, believe in me. Self says, discover yourself, all the strength you have inside. Jesus says, deny yourself and discover me. Self says, be true to yourself. Jesus says, be true to me. In context, we just read it. God goes to great lengths to remove branches from his vineyard that are self-help branches. He cuts off and burns those that yield no God-produced fruit. And clearly, they picture unbelievers in verse 2a and again in verse 6. There's a lot of people hanging around God's orchard that kind of look like they're Christians, but in fact, really are not. And God eventually exposes them. He reveals them because the lack of fruit proves they're not connected, verse 8. But for those of you who are believers genuinely in Christ, the Father prunes you to produce more fruit. Some of you right now are experiencing the pain of that pruning sometimes called disciplining. I want to borrow from the message, Eugene Peterson's free rendition of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11. Look at what he says. This is God's Word. As at the time, discipline isn't much fun. It always feels like it's going against the grain. Later, of course, it pays off handsomely, for it's the well-trained who find themselves mature in their relationship with God. Now I realize it's been a while since I've been up here, and, and some of you may wonder, who is this DeGraff guy anyway? I, I'm the counseling pastor here at Cedarville, and I love what I do. I get a front row seat into people's lives. They come into my office. They pour their hearts out, all their deepest secrets, darkest, most difficult stuff, and I sometimes weep with them, and I listen to them. And I love doing it because I want to minister to God's people. It's what family does. We walk each other home to heaven, and I want to walk with you, and that's what a body of Christ is all about, and as we walk, I want to try to encourage you, and from what I hear, many of you are really struggling with discouragement, with difficulty, with discipline. So here's my encouraging word to you today. I want to remind you that the Father's hand, watch me now, is never closer to you than when he's pruning you. Because he loves you enough to cut away what doesn't look like Jesus. Whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, Hebrews 12 tells us. I ask you right now, what is God trying to cut out of your life? I have a sneaking suspicion many of you know what that is because the Spirit keeps dinging you. And what is it that God is using to try to cut it away? What is the trial in your life? John 15, Jesus told in the last half of the chapter that for his disciples, they were going to get persecuted. They persecuted me, Jesus said, they'll persecute you. They hated me, they'll hate you. For us today, oftentimes, discipline looks like this it's a struggle with our marriage, it's a struggle with our kids or our parents, our health, our work, our finances. But we have such a wonderful Savior, He understands because He's gone through it too. Here's the verse I can't fully comprehend, but look at it with me, Hebrews 5, 8. Although he, Jesus, was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. How can the perfect son of God learn anything, and yet in his humanity, perfect deity and perfect humanity, somehow he learned obedience? If that's true of Jesus, isn't it all the more true that we need to learn obedience through the things that we suffer? God's up to something good. So will you yield to him today in this pruning process? Will you let him identify that which must go because it's not yielding real fruit? I I visit with a lot of people. And I can tell you one of the leading issues that I believe God is trying to cut out of our lives, I'm talking to myself too, I struggle with this, But many of you do as well. And here is the issue, underlying problem that leads to hundreds of other problems. It is this. It is believing the lie of performance-based acceptance. Approval addiction. Hey, everybody, look at me. See how well I'm doing? You ask, can you define performance-based acceptance? Sure. I'll start out by saying it's trying To grow fruit on your own, through your own efforts. Or as you see on the slide, it's the idea that our real identity comes from what we do, how we perform, rather than from whose we are. We have to prove that we are worthy to be loved, and we're never quite able to prove that enough, and so it becomes default legalism, living under the law. Research indicates that most people speak at a rate of 150 to 220 words per minute. But listen to me carefully. The internal dialogue that we carry on inside of ourselves in our own head, self-talk, ratchets up to 1,300 words a minute. And I would like to think we would say to ourselves, "The, the chatter doesn't matter. But frankly, we often fall prey to that inner noise. Christine Hoover, who spoke to our ladies this past spring, our, our last women's conference uh, in the Engage Network, did a wonderful job. She speaks to all of us, but ladies in particular, when she confesses this, and I'm quoting now, there are times when I can't find a way to hide from all the thoughts, all the self-condemning thoughts of everything I am not. I'm not sweet enough. I'm not enough for my friends and my husband. I'm not mom enough. I'm not good enough of a Christian for God to use. And then she adds, I've talked to enough women to know I'm not the only one that gets stuck in the mire of the not enough. We're hard on ourselves, quick to point an accusatory finger inward, and prone to believe our condemning thoughts are directed by God himself, when in fact they are not. Full disclosure, we men fall prey to this, too, including the guy that's talking to you today. It's a common theme post-conversion, looking to our performance rather than to Christ's grace. Now, because I spend a lot of time with myself—and you do with yourself—a lot of of time with other people, I kind of know how a lot of Christians think, and I'll be honest with you, I think a lot of Christians walk around thinking God's kind of mad at them. And sooner or later, the other shoe is going to drop. Guilt just oozes out of their pores, and they have no joy in their Christian life because they're living under the law, not grace. When we struggle with self-condemnation, watch me now, there's a connectedness here we often struggle with legalistic condemnation of others as well. And we become difficult to live with, especially at home. I think it was Derek Thomas who said, legalism is obeying and mandating out of conscience, which sometimes gets a little twisted, what God does not command for us or for others. (laughs) We must live in such a way that the person we love feels free, not put upon, in constant judgment. We need to be a safe person for our spouse, for our coworkers, for our fellow Christians. You know, I learn a lot from my counselees. I listen carefully. Recently, I was counseling a couple struggling with a child that's gone the wrong direction. And uh, when we finished, we were standing there by the door, and she she shared something profound that I thought, wow, i got to use that today. She said, you know, when we struggle with our kids, you have to live life with open hands so that even when they fly away to do their own thing, if your hands remain open, they'll feel welcome to return when suddenly they recognize I need to come back. But she said, if we live life with closed hands, closed fists, even if God starts to stir in them, they get the idea, I can never go home, and I can never really come back to Jesus. Our hands are an extension of our Savior's. Now, let me show you how this move from closed-handedness to open-handedness plays out at home or in church. I'm going to show you a graphic here. I want you to notice the behavior contrasts moving from what we call unhealthy to healthy. You may want to take a picture of this because I won't dwell long. By grace, we move from the left-hand column to the right-hand column. When grace reveals to us that freely we have received, freely we must give, then we will move from the compulsive to freedom, from being critical to being accepting, inflexible to being flexible, controlling to being gentle, and so it goes down the list to performance orientation, which needs to give way to relationship orientation. You know what drove me to write this sermon for you all today? Because a lot of Christians are saying to me, in effect, Kurt, this Christian life thing, it just ain't working for me. I don't know how to do it. I don't know how to move from that left-hand column to that that right-hand column. So listen to me. Please listen to me. This is the main point of my message If this vine branch metaphor teaches us anything, it's that the branch does not produce the fruit, the vine does. And the vine is Jesus. If the branch tries to produce fruit, it only produces another branch. Look at this picture of a vine and branches and and the fruit on it. Study it for a moment maybe hard to ascertain but that that clump of grapes is not coming directly from the vine it's coming through the branch which is connected to the vine the vine is jesus we are the branches and the fruit only grows when we stay connected to jesus and draw our strength from him oh i've prayed today jesus you know my weakness you got to help me. Please send your sap up through the vine and give me strength to preach to your people. May it be heaven-born fruit. The branch does not produce fruit at all. It only bears fruit. And that leads me to my last point this morning, my second point, the need to stay connected. Here it is. Bearing the fruit of Christ as a result of eating the fruit of Christ. How? By abiding in him. Abiding is a favorite word of the apostle John. He uses it 11 times here in context, 40 times in the gospel of John, 27 more times in his epistles. To abide is a big deal to John because it's a big deal to Jesus. And you say, well, what does does that archaic word abide even mean? It's from the Greek word meno, which means to remain in, to live in, to make one's home in, or to stay connected to. As I read this text over and over, I found myself writing down explanations of abiding that flowed right out of the text itself, and I'll give them to you quickly and then circle back to just illustrate and apply ever so quickly. Here's what I learned from reading the text. To abide is to feed our souls from His Word, verse 7. To abide is to rest in His love, verse 9. And to abide is to find our security in His joy, verse 11. A question, how how do we stay connected? How do we abide in, in a being we've never seen? The invisible God. Listen to me carefully. His presence is mediated, or if you will, made real to us through the Word of God. I'm going to borrow an illustration from the navigators, the hand illustration. We come close to Jesus, he comes close to us when we hear the Word of God, service like this, podcasts. When we read the Word of God, are you reading? When you study the Word of God, are you studying? You need a study Bible. When we memorize the Word of God, are you memorizing? And when you meditate on the Word of God, are you meditating? And somehow, supernaturally, when you connect with God and His Word, with a heart that's broken and humble before Him, the manifest presence of Jesus is made real to you, and you abide in. If I were to ask you, do you believe the Bible, most of you would say, of course, Kurt, I believe the Bible. Well then, what part do you need to believe today in your current circumstance? Faith is taking God at his word at the point you most need it. And then next to meditating on God's word, we we need to rest in God's love which casts out fear. I, I love 1 John 4, 18, where, where John, the apostle, same guy that wrote this, this, this book, he says, perfect love casts out fear. And the perfect love there does not reference our love for him, but his love for us, which is eternal. A verse you'll hear me say again and again in counseling is Romans 8:1. To Christians, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. We are not loved because we are worthy. We're worthy because we're loved. If you have trusted Jesus as your personal Savior, you can never do anything to make God love you more or anything to make God love you less. Look again at the picture of the branch that's abiding in the grapevine. showed it to you a moment ago. It's going to sound almost humorous to you, but is that branch straining? Is it groaning? Is it agonizing? Oh, it's tough hanging in here. No, it's just hanging around and resting. It's just staying connected to. Christian, stop running and start resting. Stop trying and start trusting. And then you'll find rest from God's love. Remember, religion prompts the wrong picture of your heavenly father. It prompts you to say, I messed up. My dad is going to kill me. Jesus teaches you to say, I messed up. I better call my dad. That's the story behind the parable of the prodigal son. When it comes to, to joy, Pastor Pat has repeatedly told us that there are two marks of genuine conversion. They are joy and gratitude, and I agree. Forgiveness brings joy. Have you been forgiven? And grace brings gratitude. We We suddenly realize, wait a minute, I don't deserve this. I can't earn it. I can't perform for it. It's a free gift of God. And if you're here and you're outside of a branch that's connected, may I just remind you that it's not by anything you do, any church rite or ritual, trying to keep the Ten Commandments or otherwise, because we always, always fall short. No, we're only saved by grace through faith and that not of ourselves. It's the gift of God. It's not a works lest anybody should boast, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Some of you here who are genuinely saved are still so driven by your efforts to prove you deserve God's love, you're not enjoying Him because you're still striving. I got to do it harder, better. A word from the Lord, stop it. Stop it and rest in the Savior. You know, at God's state fair, you must get off the Pharisees' favorite ride, which is the merry-go-round of legalism. Self-help, self-improvement, and instead you need to get on this, the sky rider of God's sovereign grace, because it's great riding up there. It's free riding up there. I'll change the name to the Gospel Glider. Get on board the Gospel Glider and rise above your circumstances and enjoy the grace of God that carries you safely home to heaven. Well, let me show you the Skywriter from a different perspective with people beneath it, which of course is always the case. You may know this, but last year at the 2021 State Fair, there was a couple of guys in one of these chairs that were having some fun. And they started dropping money to the people below, one and two dollar bills. boop. boop. <laughs> Can you imagine the people scrambling? Ooh, Money from heaven. Now, I can't guarantee that will happen this year if you go to the fair. But I want to show you something greater in illustration. Do you know that God sent to earth from above the greatest possession of heaven, the greatest prize and treasure, the Lord Jesus Christ? For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might be rich. If you'll just plug into Jesus. All of this is what communion pictures, fellowship with a heaven-sent Savior. We're going to partake of the Lord's table in just a few moments. But first, I must ask you a probing question. Are you genuinely connected to the Savior? Have you been born again? Have you believed the gospel? He died in your place to pay for your sin, and you're not trusting anything you do? And have you evidenced in your life, experienced His resurrection life in your fruitfulness? Because where there is life, there is fruit. I asked Pastor Paul to sing that song, Yet Not I, But Through Christ in Me, because it, it summarizes what I'm trying to say today, and it's actually captured in the verse he, he prayed in his prayer. It's a little play on three prepositions. Christ gave his life for us as a sacrifice, that he might give his life to us to live inside of us by means of the Spirit, that he might live his life through us by his power and not by our own. See if you can hear that in Galatians 2.20. I am crucified with Christ for me. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. He gave his life to me. And the life I now live in this body of flesh, I live by the faith or faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He's living his life through me. There it is. Illustration. Vine and the branches. I love that. One of my heroines in the faith is a lady named Johnny Erickson Tata. Many of you have heard of her. She is a tremendous author and and singer and and speaker. What you may not know is that she was in an accident years ago, and for now, 50 years, she's been sitting down in a stand-up world. When she dove into the waters of Chesapeake Bay back east, she broke her neck, and she's been a quadriplegic for half a century. I use this illustration in my counseling office when folks are really struggling. I say, you know what Johnny does? When she wakes up in the morning and she's still paralyzed, still paralyzed after all this time, and she can't move, and she says, oh, I just don't feel joy today, she will look up and she'll say, Jesus, would you be my smile today? And he gives it to her. And I'll give it to you in your circumstances if you'll accept it. A quote from Major Ian Thomas. I can't. He never said I could. He can. He always said he would. Help us to believe that, Lord. How important is this emphasis of abiding in Christ. I beg that you will bring it home to our hearts and that every true child of God will rest, not wrestle. Trust, not try harder. Thank you for these elements of the Lord's table which remind us of the perfect body of Jesus and the shed blood of Jesus. His perfect body brings for us a righteous substitute, and his shed blood brings forgiveness for those who believe. And I pray you'd help us to rest in that today and celebrate you. Oh God, may we truly trust